What is up, guys? My name is KJ, and this is Why Theology. So glad to be back. And I also have Jeremiah with me, man. Hey, everybody. My name is Jeremiah Nortier, um, frequent guest slash host on Why Theology. KJ, thanks for having me on again, man. No problem, man. We're having a lot of technical difficulties trying to get all together, so I'm glad his patience were enduring with me. Patience of Job. <laughs> Our patience right there. Some good patience. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I know once again, maybe somebody just tuning in this week and they didn't watch our last, uh, when they heard our last podcast episode. So we have a debate coming up. When is that and where are the details about that? Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. So February 11th at 6 p.m., I'll be debating at Arkansas State University. I'm debating a Church of Christ gentleman on baptism. Um, so we will get to kind of present our cases and talk about the importance of this. Uh, the Church of Christ view essentially sees baptism as necessary for a right standing with God. And um, I would contend to say baptism is important, but it simply demonstrates a justified heart, somebody that's put their faith in Christ, and then they ought in works of obedience demonstrate that. So uh, yeah, that's February 11th, 6 p.m. at ASU in Centennial Hall. All right. I already know it's going to be a pretty good debate, man. What else has been going on that maybe the Lord's been teaching you lately? <clears throat> well, it's funny we're talking about patience, um, but just but just patience um, and serving at 12-5 Church where I serve at, um, just patience with God's timing and discipleship, with sermon preparation, with teaching, loving on the people that God has brought us. Uh, my opportunity, KJ, I want to do everything so fast the way that I see it, but I want God's perfect timing. So that is, hopefully we can talk about sanctification at some point in the future, but patience is so sanctifying you know definitely definitely i'm mean, at um have patience with my football team man i, I thought we were gonna go all the way this year and i got let down once again but it's okay though it's okay <laughs> but definitely uh maybe in the foreseeable future talk about sanctification because i mean it's something every christian i mean goes through god said he would do it and maybe talk about the ins and out of that now i mean all the topics that we've discussed this one might be the most difficult and like i guess diving deep into the waters of the like, theology and so the topic today is um, the problem of evil. And so me and Jeremiah are going to try to tackle this together. And now it's always good when we're having any kind of discussion, especially about Christianity and theology, to talk about what God we're referring to. So when like you had a question, Jeremiah, who is God? What comes to mind for you? Yeah, uh, the only true God of the scripture is the triune God, God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternal communion with one another and has revealed himself to us in his word and we also know by looking at creation the world is structured in such a complex diverse particular way that's also unified that only the the triune god could account for um so that's the god the god of christianity is the only true god uh who's revealed himself to us in his word and i always add the fact of um, his ascetity how um, he sustains himself by his own power like humans for example we need you know water air and food but god existed before air, water, and food came into being that shows that he can keep his own, he sustains himself. And then like you said, the Trinity, three and one and one and three, God is one, but also three persons. That separates Christianity, the God from all other religions and their false gods. And so we're talking about the God of the Bible. Now when we're dealing with the problem evil, what does the Bible say about that particular God we're referring to in the Bible? I know a couple of verses, some people say is James 1.13 and Psalms 5 and 4. How would you kind of reconcile those verses? And I can read those verses. I'll read one. Yeah. Let me go to the James. Yeah, the James one. If you want, KJ, I'll read the James one. If you want to go to the Psalm one, because um, I think James one thirteen has a really informative context that's worth noting um, in this conversation about evil, how it relates to God. Okay. So James one thirteen, along with fourteen, says, "Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil." And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. So God does not tempt us um, in any way like our flesh tempts us. That's really the context is on the human level that when we see something that's luring, kind of like a fish hook, you got this bait dangling out there, our flesh immediately gravitates to this. God does not tempt us in any way, shape or form by dangling something um, in front of us. Um, the tempter is Satan, right? He's constantly warring against the saints and God does not tempt us. When we talk about God, 
he is in a category unique of himself. And so what's interesting, KJ, is the word tempted here is the same Greek word for test. Mm. When God moves and works, he tests us. I mean, he, that's what he says earlier. Um, kind of all joy of my brothers when you go through various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When God moves and interacts, it's, it's in the form of a test, that positive implication. But when we are tempted in the negative sense, it's because of our flesh, it's because of the work of the devil. So, yeah, just because God is sovereign and upholds the universe by the word of his power and has um, ordained whatsoever comes to pass, nobody in creation gets to accuse God of any more moral failures. He's in a unique category all of his own. And it all fits perfectly together. Definitely, definitely. And uh, that verse talks about how, like you said, God tends no one. And so it, it would be, it would contradict the essence of who God is, which we'll talk about later, that he's truly good. And so for God to tempt somebody, how would you kind of correlate that? If God were the one intended people to sin, how would that relate to his character? Yeah, well, it would, it would fall apart because this is in the negative sense tempting here is something that which the devil does to us the tempting more specifically here is how our flesh engages with you know those things that are luring us in and so yeah god god cannot tempt us in this category because he is perfectly good um he is holy um we'll get more into this but he's the ground of all being he's the one sustaining everything that has been created so yeah it really doesn't make sense kj to say that god it's not even possible that God could tempt man in this particular category where this gets interesting and a little off topic is when we start talking about the God man, Jesus, how is it that he was truly tempted in all ways like we are and yet was without sin? Definitely. It's actually a good way to think about it. I'm going to let you answer that a little bit later. So I'm going to see what you think. <laughs> <laughs> Psalms chapter five, verse four and five, it says this, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with it within you. Though boastful should not stand in your sight, you hate all workers of iniquity. Some translations say you hate all who commit evil. But I just want to focus on verse four. The end of verse four says this, nor shall evil dwell within you. So it kind of is very similar to the James passage talks about how like God has taken no one because there's no evil within God. And then right here, like God is not like take pleasure within evil. He hates it. And so if God, we'll talk about this, but we're talking about the problem of evil. So the problem of evil in a certain sense, like God's not the author of it in this sense that he's not the one that's committing the evil in the world that's the way you can look at it what would you say about i guess these two verses and i have another verse i want to talk about too what would you say so far yeah um you know it's interesting because you have to reconcile these verses that says you know god cannot tempt any man he would not um you, you do have to acknowledge god is still sovereign in some capacity when you read passages that say god in fact is working all things together after the counsel of his will. Um, and for the believer, the application is all things are working together for our good, for our sanctification, those who are called according to his purpose. Mm -hmm. So God is sovereign. He has a purpose in evil existing. It's not just randomly happening in his universe. No, God is omniscient. In light of that omniscience, he created this world. Everything has purpose. And that's just something that we have to understand. we got to let God have creator categories. And when we look at human flesh and the devil, we got to have creature categories. And so we always have to maintain those distinctions as we talk about these things. Definitely, definitely. Now, I know a pretty big one a lot of people talk about when we're dealing with this subject is um, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. And it's the King James Version where it says this, I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. How would you kind of go into that verse? Yeah, so I'm glad I actually have that pulled up too. Um, so this is the ESV. For I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Calamity. I'm the Lord that does these things. So to me, um, what we have to understand is that there is what we call natural evil that occurs in this world, like buildings falling over and people dying. Um, we have to understand that there are natural disasters that take lives. God is the author of life, and he is also, he can take someone out. It's his prerogative. He's the author of life, right? Um, Job understood that and said, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But God is the ultimate one that determines that. And the reason why we, we don't, we shouldn't um, 
we shouldn't get mad at the creator because that's futile. We see that in Psalm chapter two, that the nations rage, the king's plot against God. And yet he laughs because it's a foolish thing to try to rival the creator in that way. I think that that probably is talking more about natural evil, but mm-hmm. God still is the one that has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, even moral evil. He has a purpose. There's an end. There's a there's an end goal that God is working out for his own glory, and he's going to display mercy right on whomever he wills, Romans chapter 9, um, and he's going to exercise justice on whomever he will, right? And so we understand that God is going to ultimately be glorified at the end of the day, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Definitely. And uh, if you look at the, um, obviously, like you said, it, the three different types of evil, the, the calamity will fix more with the context as God is talking to Cyrus, and it fits more with the context. Verse six, that I may know from the rising of the sun that it is said that there is none beside me. I'm the Lord and there is no other. So back and forth, you see this contrast. And it's kind of what verse seven is getting into that contrast once again. Now, I guess we continue this conversation. I like, like us to define a couple of terms that will help us kind of dive more into this conversation. And I'm going to add another term I didn't talk to you about beforehand. I'm going to see what you think about this. So I guess number one, when we say like the author or something, so me and you probably both agree that God is not the author of sin, but we probably would say that God, he's the primary cause of everything that exists in the world. Now, how do the two go against, how, how can we correlate those two? Because me and you agree, once again, we agree with that, that he's a primary cause of everything, but he's not the author of sin. How did that go to hand in hand? Yeah, we, we always have to divide, define our terms because God does, is not the effectual author of sin. He is not the one moving evil to come about. He uses means. Um, I, I do say that God authorizes evil similar to a writer of a story, right? If you read J.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, there's a lot of evil that goes about. But J.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings or J.K. Rowling is not the effectual author um, of the characters actually carrying out these evil. But the whole story was kind of determined by the writer and they are free to do that. God is free to create a world that he sees fit. And so that's how I want to help people understand. So he uses means to bring about that in cause. This doesn't totally capture everything. I do think there's some mystery attached to it, but God permits Satan to do what he wants. Now that whole dialogue was ordained to happen. But when, when Satan wanted to afflict Job, he had to have permission by God. And so God determined this world for that to take place. And he uses the means of Satan to afflict Job. And yet, Job does not say, I blame Satan. I'm mad at him. He humbly acknowledged the sovereign creator and say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think that's a really good way of looking at it, KJ. I think it's James 5.11 that says, you've seen the in purpose of the Lord to display mercy and compassion. God had a plan in it all. He had a purpose in it all. But look at the means that he used. Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil, right? It's like a dog on a leash and he can only go where God allows him to. Now, some of our um, fellow brothers would say the devil's bound, so we have to be careful by saying he's on a leash, you know. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, I like what you said that, like, you know, God's not the author of evil, but he does authorize it. That's a way, cool way to think of it. That again, like, even the story of Job is a perfect example that, like, you know, Job uh, wasn't getting, like, the devil was the person that was you know, doing all those things at Job, but God knew about it the whole time and he allowed it. And at any moment, he could have easily present presented it, but he allowed it to happen. The same today, you know, we're going to talk about this later, but the problem of evil, like, you know, the same things today that we see around like murder, rape, stealing. I always have to be careful about some of these topics because people, you know, how we view God, it may, you know, maybe God's evil because he allowed these things to happen. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But so that's how we define the author and then the primary cause. Another one, how does the how can we define free will? Because it's going to be kind of helpful as we get into some other deep questions about the problem of evil. Yeah, um, I think there's just really two major categories that people interact with. I mean, there's a lot of uh, philosophy that goes into this, but essentially you have what's called libertarian free will. And then you also have another understanding of what's co- called compatibilistic free will. And so those are the two terms. And just to define them quickly, libertarian free will 
says that in any given moment, talking about people, we have the ability to choose to do otherwise. It's not, it's not foreordained. It's not predestined. We live in this undeterministic world and the power to choose rests solely in the believer or unbeliever or the person. Um, it's left with them. And to me, I think that actually doesn't, I don't think that that's possible given the attributes that God actually has, but that we can get in more into that. And then compatibilistic free will. I actually like quoting Proverbs 16, verse nine, that says man chooses, makes his plans according to his heart. And yet God has determined or purposed his steps. Basically what it says is the free that we experience is what we truly desire to do according to our heart. I'm sitting here talking with you and I'm choosing to do that. That's compatible with God for ordaining it before the foundation of the world. So um, just to kind of help people too, man can't mirror this in the sense of we can't create robots, right? That truly feel and have volition um, to make those kind of choices. They're mechanical. They, they have a program. Even artificial intelligence cannot feel like truly that's the best man can do, but that doesn't truly reflect what God has done. You can add to it too. I know Arsis Pro talks about how like, you know, humans, we're human beings, but then obviously God's a divine being. And even in the garden, man wasn't totally free because there were restrictions. Man could do only so much that God allowed them to do. But yet with God, there is no restrictions. So you see how that free will is limited only to the choices that God allows his creation to do. As your favorite term, the creature creator distinction right there <laughs> so we see that all throughout the scriptures that like mankind only is able to do what god allows them to do because he's the creator and it makes sense he's authority to, to tell us what to do now how does that i guess it kind of falls into another category which is determinism many people say that like mankind can determine as you said earlier like their future for example and many prosperity you know preachers preach that but how would that kind of relate to this topic of the problem of evil? Yeah, there's, there's kind of a few different terms I want people to be familiar with. Under determinism, you have what's known as soft determinism or hard determinism. And then you have a different category of indeterminism. That's where libertarian free will fits under that. And then there's a secular philosophical term within determinism, and it's fatalism. Hmm. And so it's, it's worth distinguishing all these things because fatalism, we'll go ahead and start with saying how that's that that can't work fatalism says that since the the universe is set everything is being moved by fate some impersonal force makes everything fixed it's arbitrary and i would say that's a form of hard determinism and really since everything is arbitrary based on this impersonal force nothing has meaning i think ecclesiastes was would say that Everything under that model would be meaningless, like grasping for, for air. So um, fatalism does not begin to touch what theological determinism what we're trying to get at. Um, so, so hard determinism says it doesn't matter what you choose to do because God's already predetermined it to happen. And we would say that that doesn't seem to represent the biblical model, and it doesn't really comport with our experience either. Um, we would just challenge that definition of hard determinism, concluding that it doesn't matter. I would say the contrary, because God has foreordained and purposed whatsoever comes past, especially in my life, what I do actually has meaning because it's grounded in that Trinitarian council. So a lot of this is semantics, KJ. It's how you define terms and ultimately what does the Bible teach? That's what we want to get back to. Um, so soft determinism says Absolutely. What we choose to do is compatible with what God has ordained. And I love what Dr. James White has pointed out is the incarnation truly brings meaning to our world and shows us that God, it matters to God and it matters on our side of things too, because God, the son took on flesh and dwelt among us. You can't just say what hard determinism says is it's, it's all like binary code and it's all going to happen. And it's, basically like fatalism and it doesn't matter we're saying no it's compatible because god stepped into that creation and he's the one upholding it all and he is the one that redeems man 
right? God is letting his plan of redemption unfold. So I just say that um, soft determinism reflects the biblical outlook and you got to understand free will in terms of compatibilistic free will. Definitely. I like to think of it too. Let me read this, the confession here first and I'll explain it. But chapter three of the confession says, from all eternity, God has decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by his perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and intangible. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin, nor has any fellowship with sin. This part is kind of key right here. It says this decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decrees. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things in his power and faithfulness. So you kind of like to think of it like this way too, because in the Bible, like you said, you have the, the scriptures teaching both. You have the scriptures teaching of this God's sovereignty, but also man's responsibility, free will. They go hand in hand. You can't, they're inseparable, as Charles Spurgeon would say. Now, um, I think on the story in Acts, I forget which chapter it is, maybe Acts 2, when Peter said, preaching to like the, the crowds, and he says, you know, all these things happen as your hand destiny or determined, as some translations may say. Now, that doesn't mean that the people in the audience, like God forced them to do all those things that, will, that he determined to happen. The Old Testament predicted how the Messiah would die. But no, God was using the free will, the creatures, us humans and our sin to accomplish his means to bring about the Messiah's death on the cross. And so you hear God's sovereignty. God knew in eternity past that his, what his plan was, which is have the Messiah down the cross. But at the same time, you had free creatures acting and you know, making decisions that God used those decisions to bring about the death. What do you think about that, Jeremiah? That's good. Um, what I what I think is interesting because I've listened to Christian philosophers online. They try to say that God has decreed man's libertarian decisions and worked that out. And I'm saying that's a contradiction in terms. And this is what I try to dial it back to, KJ, is if God is omniscient, truly, and omnipotent, then He determined to create this world and everything in it, declaring the end from the beginning so that um, his counsel and purposes would stand. And so from God's perspective, it's all set. And we just need to let the creator be the creator and trust him and pray for his mercy in our lives and so forth. Um, so, and this is another thing. If someone affirms God's omniscience before the foundation of the world, then what they have to understand is they are in a hard position to account for because man cannot truly choose to do otherwise in any given moment if God is omniscient and then created this world. Um, they, they, we, you would simply be falling back in this compatibilistic position saying, well, yeah, God, God foreknows what I'm going to do. Um, and we're over here saying, absolutely, because he's omniscient. He's not forcing you, right? He's upholding the universe and has ordained for any moment, what you feel, what you're going to do. I've heard some people say, well, he's not, doesn't care about my socks that I put on. <laughs> he created this world that was going to come about in a particular way. And one of the best verses to illustrate that is the last verse in Proverbs 16 um, that says, um, the, the, we cast a lot, but it's every decision is of the Lord. <laughs> and that's, that's a good illustration to, to say that even random things to us, maverick molecules bouncing around whether we put on socks all these meaningless mundane things god has a purpose in it we just don't get to see the big picture and last thing i want to say kj is every position has to give a theodicy oh. they have to give a, an account of evil and for the person that wants to uphold libertarian free will and yet say but god was omniscient before he created the world well, they, they have to give an account just like us. And this is going to sound just like what the reform position says. Well, yeah, God knew, right? But um, I'm trying to think, God is still that primary first cause. And so we're saying, how is it even possible? Because if, if I truly had the ability to choose to do otherwise, it would actually limit God's omniscience in some way. And then I think it would contradict it, he wouldn't be omniscient anymore. Um, that's why some people adopt what's called open theism, that God doesn't know the future, because if he did, then we wouldn't be free creatures. And I'm over here saying, well, how about just let God be God and let us be the creatures, and we truly choose according to our heart's desire. Yeah, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 11, in him also we have attained inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
And so when you think about that word all, I mean, all means all without exception, right? And so everything in human history is happening from God. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> the, re- the reason all means all of there is because it's talking about God's all-encompassing attributes. We always look at the word all in its context. A lot of times when we talk about God desires that all men be saved. Well, that's in a particular context of all men without distinction, not without exception. And so, but when we're talking about God, who is um, all um, for of him, through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory. Well, absolutely. That's all encompassing, right? All things are working together after God's counsel to the praise of his glorious grace. Definitely. And then again, in um, the confession, chapter three, paragraph two, it says, did you mention it? But it says God knows everything that could happen under any given condition. However, his decrees of anything is not based on foreseeing in the future or foreseeing that it recur under such conditions. So it's like it's not like God's looking down through history. Okay, he's saying, OK, KJ and Jeremiah, go and have this podcast. OK, now let me not now let me at. But no, God's determined like it's basically we're arguing soft determinism. You have God's sovereignty and freedom going together using the second causes of man. But also, he's still sovereign. He knew, he planned it out exactly that would happen the way it did. Mm-hmm. So they go hand in hand. Now, I, you mentioned the word earlier, but the Odyssey, this is what we're dealing with right now, the study of evil, many people call it. Now, when we're defining evil again, we're talking about the Odyssey. How does the Bible define evil? I, I, I kind of put a little header under this. Is it a person? Is it an action? What else we define evil as, Jeremiah, to you? It's interesting because I've always been intrigued with this question because we're asking what is the ontos of evil? What is it, right? Because we don't want to say evil is merely the absence of good, right? It is in a way like we would say that darkness is the absence of light, but it's not just a mere absence. There's something there. I forget which philosopher um, tried to say, look, um, you have a donut, right? And in the hole, there's nothing there. So it's not satisfying to say that um, it's merely um, the absence of good. There's something there. So there's an ontology there. Evil exists in the world. And so I think what we get at is evil is kind of twofold. It begins in the the heart of man. Um, There's obviously other angelic beings that are evil. And um, it carries out into actions. So I didn't know if you want to chime in on that. Yeah, I like what you said. I like to think of it, too, because a lot of times when we think about evil, we're thinking about like the I know most people in mind me to go to like the evil that's in the world. Is God the author of the evil that's gone in the world? Many Calvinists preach that God is sovereign. So that must mean that God is the offer. If he's predetermined everything to happen, he must predetermine evil to happen in the world. And so many people think of God being, you know, the author of evil in that sense. And so if that's true, just, you know, granting that, you know, that thinking, First John 3 says this, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that when he was manifested, he can't take away sins. Whoever buys and does not sin, as you guys know that verse. But John defines sin as breaking the law. How can God break his own law? Uh, God is perfect and holy and just, so he can't go against his law. For God to break his law, for God to sin, that would make we would all be in trouble because how could the Messiah die on the cross if he was not perfect? And so for God to be the author of sin, it would contradict who he is in essence. What's your take on that? Well, I thought you did a good job explaining it. Um, evil has that moral component like we're talking about. And then earlier we mentioned how there are natural evils as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, God can be sovereign. Uh, another phrase that we've used, KJ, that I really like is God uses sin sinlessly. That's only possible because of the creator creation distinction. The creator is qualitatively different than what he created. So he's able to uphold and sustain his creation to plan it out in such a particular way um, without him being that effectual. That's key. Without being the effectual cause or author of evil. Definitely. And we've already quoted many scriptures about that. But just for somebody that's kind of interested, a story of Job. I think the with the Genesis 26 with Abimelech, um, the people that killed Jesus, uh, Peter tells us in Acts, all those things happened by the hand of the Lord, but yet God did not sin at all. He just used it to bring about his means. Again, using the free will of mankind to orchestrate his plan throughout history. Perhaps Genesis 50 verse 20 brings this full circle. You got <laughs> Joseph's brothers, all of their evil actions, they intended to bring harm, evil. 
And yet you have God, the same verb, yet God intended it for good. That's that's compatibilism. Um, God is not using libertarian free creatures that he doesn't know their their actions. And you can't just say he foreknows it. Well, he foreknows it because he sustains his creation and has planned it out. I really do think, KJ, to say that man has the ability to choose otherwise in the libertarian sense would necessarily negate God's omniscience. That's good. Well said, man. Now, when we think about this, um, now that we define, you know, author, primary cause, free will, and determinism, how does all that tie into the theodicy of the study of evil? Is God responsible? Yeah, this is, well, all those terms are important because everybody has to give a theodicy. Everyone, even the atheists, they have to try to give an account for the evils that happen in this place. You got false religions that try to say that it's illusory, that it's actually not real. And that's not satisfying to the, the human soul. We know evil exists. And as Christians, we, God has revealed that. We actually can know where evil came about. It stems back to Adam and Eve with Satan in the garden. And we're going to get into how there was a process. There, there's an even more fundamental original sin before original sin with man. So I think what it's going to come down to is if someone's going to hold to God's omniscience, they're going to say behind every evil act is a God that knew it was going to happen and could stop it. But he's just like, I'm over here. I, I'm just I'm allowing it to happen for my own purposes. And I'm just on standby watching and hoping that you make the right decision. And to me, that's very unsatisfying. Uh, because God is allowing so much evil that he didn't really want to happen. And I think the correct biblical narrative is that God has purpose in all things. Everything relates together because he is the creator of all things and he has purpose, right? He's working it out. And so, yeah, when you look at an evil action, you can say, God, you mean this for good. I can't necessarily see this in this moment, you've told me to be thankful in all things and to rejoice in all things because this is for my good and for my sanctification. And so I think for the reform perspective, people can say God is the creator as defined by the scripture and he is good. He is working all things together for, for his glory and in purposes. Nothing is going to catch him off guard. And he's not this, this lower in my mind, I know people would be mad at me, but he's not just on the sideline rooting on. No, God, God's the sovereign creator. He has purpose in all things. Well said, man. Well said. Now we think about that, Jeremiah. Now that we kind of say some of these things, can we as Christians say that even as if you're a Calvinist or you believe in God's sovereignty, you don't like the term Calvinist, but you say you believe in God's sovereignty. I mean, we all have to as the Christians, right? Can we as Christians articulate and say that God's the author of evil? Or if a, even an atheist, if they say God's the author of evil, how can we go about talking about that based on the scripture we've kind of already dealt with today? We, we, we simply want to distinguish what we're talking about. I think we can emphatically say, no, God is not the author of evil. What do we mean by that is he's not effectually causing evil on that secondary means like we talked about earlier. God is not, you don't see this magical hand come out of the sky with a giant gun prodding <laughs> you to do evil. That's, that's the kind of the absurdity we're saying, no, God is not the author of evil in that sense. Now, the Leighton Flowers people that I respect, love them, a lot of people in the SBC world, um, they're really trying to get us to, to admit that God is the author of creation of everything, and that would include evil. And we're saying, yeah, there's no moral fault of God for being the creator of all things. Um, that's those are biblical categories. Um, he's even created the wicked for the day of destruction. Hmm. So what we distinguish, though, is that he is authorizing evil, right? Just like uh, J.R. Tolkien is authorizing the whole book of Lord of the Rings. And you're free to do that without being morally culpable for the, the atrocities that happen within that. And we're saying God gets to do that on an even bigger scale, this three dimensional world that he transcends. So we just want to ease people's consciences and say, no, God is not the author of evil, but we still got to explain that. And that everybody has to explain it. And I think you and I have talked about it before. There is mystery involved. We don't have the omniscient mind of God, but in his word, he's revealed to us that he is sovereign and we truly are responsible within that. Definitely, definitely. And then also for the atheists who may say, well, God is evil. 
it has several problems in it because obviously in no worldview they can't even articulate what is morality because we're all just an accident there's no purpose many people say we evolved from monkeys right or animals so we were just animals doing what's in our nature and we have to they have to steal from the christian worldview to even make sense of morality and that's a whole other discussion and so we would still say no to that the guy's not the author but like you've already said he used secondary causes now the second part I think I forgot who it was. Was it Plato or Socrates that kind of came up with this idea, the Euthyphro dilemma? And it basically it was this that God, can he just say something, you know, is you know, can he do something, call it good? Or is there a standard that God loves? He does something because it's good. And so, for example, the dilemma is if God, let's say, for example, if God says murder and rape is okay, does that make it good because God said it so? Or does God not lie and say not to lie because it's good? And the dilemma is that like there's a if that's let's go to second the latter. If let's say for example lying is you know bad right and God just hates lying, that means that God has looks look to a standard outside Himself, which means God's not God. And on the other front, you know can God say murder is okay tomorrow and people can start murdering? Well, we obviously say no. There's no dilemma there because God cannot contradict Himself. In His essence, He's truly perfect in goodness, so He must always hate the opposite of goodness. And so there's no dilemma here. I'll let Jeremiah kind of deal with that as well. That's good. Um, we would we would say as Christians with the Christian worldview that it's a false dilemma. There's a third option. Um, God is not subservient to these laws outside of himself. Um, another point that usually gets brought up is the laws of logic. God is not bending the knee to some abstract law out there. And it's the same with morality. There's not a standard outside of himself. And then the other um, other side of the dilemma says, oh, well, God can just arbitrarily say what is good, and then that's good. And we want to we always stay away from what's arbitrary. The scriptures teach something different, um, a third option, if you will. Um, God, it, goodness reflects the nature of God, similar to logic reflects the mind of God. And so it's much deeper than just what God says is good. Um, that that is the ultimate standard goodness reflects the character of God and so yeah there that gets into some interesting I think practical things like um, what about when um, God told Abraham sacrifice his son well for one we have the biblical categories to know that Abraham is obligated to obey God and the scripture tells us that Abraham knew that God was going to keep his promise of using Isaac to bless all the nations. So he knew that he is the God of resurrection, right? And so we see the wonderful faith that um, I, uh, that Abraham had in God to accomplish his purposes. Um, so there's also distinction between murder and killing, right? Um, and that's, I guess that's kind of different. But what I was going to say is where this practically plays out is murder is wrong because God is not a murderer, mm. right? We're made in his image. And we're all image bearers of God and we're to, to honor and respect one another as imago days, right? Mm -hmm. But this is where God gets to move in a qualitatively uh, different state than us, meaning that when God takes a life, it's not the same as when we kill justly or we murder wrongly. God is the author and creator of life. He's written all of our days in a book and has ordained that for us. Literally is what Psalm 139 talks about. So um, the Euthro dilemma is a false dilemma. We would just say goodness reflects who God is. He's not doing things arbitrarily, but with purpose, because um, the beginning from the end is going somewhere. It's been determined according to God's purposes. Um, arbitrary can't even come into the picture because like i said god is has a purpose in all things definitely definitely now um again like i said in chapter three the confession i know um people say even westminster confession but i'm talking about the london baptist confession it talks about how god has ordained whatsoever comes to pass and now if that's true and it, even the writers of the confession ain't me you argue for like a soft deterministic you know view of this the scriptures how does someone you know even me and you can hold this out determinism and not say that God's responsible for evil. And now I guess people, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because people straight, they straight go right to the, you know, Adam and Eve and they go to the devil. And now this is where we're like, you know, we have, you know, we can kind of explain Adam and Eve and we'll get to the devil later, but let's just start with Adam and Eve first. You know, if God's determined all things that happen, 
I mean, God determined that Adam and Eve will fall. It's what people thinking is. I'm gonna just talk of this, so I'll mess up. Not play. <laughs> Go ahead, though. Yeah. You so, <laughs> yeah. So, um, Adam and Eve, everything that happened, God purposed that way. Um, he wasn't caught off guard. Um, even though the Adam and Eve's choices were not marred by sin, their choices were still compatible with God's sovereignty. And I like the New King James and King James uh, rendering of Revelation 13. I think it's eight. You have to double check me on that. It talks about how Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This entails that God purposed that God the son would be the, the lamb to accomplish redemption. And I have to look this up real quick, but first Peter chapter one, I think around verse 20, doing this off the top of the dome. So talking about Jesus being a, a lamb without blemish or spot, precious blood of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. That's wonderful. It's not that God just learned knowledge and looked into the future, but Jesus had a purpose in the mind of God. It was foreknown to happen. It was determined beforehand. A lot of times foredetermination and foreknow go hand in hand, especially in a loving context. Um, I think foreknow here is talking about how the blood of Christ um, the lamb without blemish was foreknown for your sake, right? It was done out of love. And so this was the plan of God. God had it all beautifully planned out how it was going to be accomplished. And when people say, well, how can God ultimately determine, you know, people to reject? And I'm like, look, God is going to be just in that. It's not like they're wanting really bad to believe in him and he, they just weren't elected. So just too bad for them, and they're just going to be over there sad. No, what's also compatible with God's determining the reprobate is that they are God-haters. They truly, from the heart, hate the things of God, and they would rather stay in their sin and die in that sinful state. So what's God's purpose in that? Justice, holiness, and to exercise wrath for sinners that choose to do those things. So we always just try to fall back on these biblical categories that God does take responsibility for the world that he created. But on a human level, he's also going to hold us accountable for what we choose according to our hearts. Definitely, definitely. Now, again, you know, Adam and Eve is not as, as speculative as, you know, the devil committing evil. But I guess we can think about it in this angle. What would, I guess, your opinion be on, on this matter? So Adam and Eve, they were perfect in the sense that there was no sin within them. What do you think the idea, even to be tempted, with um committing sin came from yeah well the bible is actually very clear that they were tempted not by god but by satan right that that serpent of old and what's interesting is they were living in this perfect environment of bliss communing with the with the creator and then you had this other person this other personal agent stepping into their context in some ways, expanding their mind to consider new options, right? Talking about the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and saying, oh, you'll be like God with all this knowledge. Well, that's a game changer because like I said, that expands the mind of Eve and Adam knowing not to because of what God and him had talked about, but just passively letting it happen. So it's almost easy to see the secondary means that God used to bring um, Adam and Eve's disobedience. It was Satan, right? Remember what Luther said, the devil is God's devil. So in my opinion, it's easy to see how um, original sin happened with man. Uh, God permitted, ordained um, Satan to be that secondary means, right? To ultimately attempt Eve, who was deceived, and Adam passed, we let it happen. And him being the male, um, obviously we all died, and Adam is our federal head. Hmm. Now here's another question, follow up. Well, somebody may say, well, if the devil never tempted Adam and Eve, would they have sinned? How would you answer that one? So I'll say that again. If, if oh, if um, this, the devil hadn't tempted them, would they have sinned? I would say yeah. no. I got you. I got you. Now, somebody else may say, you know, especially atheists, well, why would God allow that to happen? You know, if he knew that the devil oh, would man. tempt them and they would, in fact, sin, what was the point of, you know, even allowing that to happen? I would say excellent question. The Bible on a handful, a handful of places it actually answers that. I think Ephesians 1 ultimately is the best. 
but you got God and all of his attributes, this um, divine, simple being that is Father, Son, Holy Spirit communing with one another, in perfect harmony, um, loving relationship. And that sovereign triune God determined to put um, his glory on display, his glory, namely being his attributes, love, grace, mercy, um, patience. Um, and those are the ones that everybody likes, but also God's attributes entail justice, holiness. And so in a world where there's sin, love's response and justice's response to sin is wrath. And so how are you going to put that on display if you create a world? We have to determine a world where evil enters into the picture so you can redeem a people that does not deserve it. So the full range of God's glory is put on display. That is the reason why, whether somebody likes it or not, I just yeah. say, and how do I know that? God's revealed that to us in his word. Yeah, I think it was Johnny Mac actually helped me think about that too, that like God gets, gets more glorified by allowing evil to happen about. Because you think about this, like, you know, God's more concerned about his glory. He's not concerned about humans' glory. It's about his glory, right? We, are, we exist to give God glory. That's our purpose in life. God does not exist for us. We exist for him because he's the he's the most glorious thing. out. There's nothing better than worshiping God because he's the most desirable thing to worship. Right. And um, this next thing we think about, you know, how did the devil fall? Because, you know, you got this, this angelic being. He's in heaven. Perfect place. He's in the presence of God. And yet what is the idea to even sin against a holy being in heaven even come from? You have everything you could ever want in heaven, the presence of God, other angels and yet this being. He sins, and I think Johnny Mac said something similar to you: is that God had to story to where He can get the most glory. Now I know somebody will object, especially atheists, but like if you, if what you said is true, KJ, that we exist for God and God cares about His glory. You know, why did God even create humans or angels if He already was glorious? And then on the front, the flip side, you know, we talked about the devil sinning in heaven. So, what's your thoughts on those things? So many things, KJ. <laughs> um, I think I think it's Ephesians three. It talks about putting the manifold wisdom on God on display for the angelic hosts and with equally say for man. So did God have to put his glory in this display? We'd say no. He chose to do that. So he didn't have to. He's a necessary being in of himself. Um, we are contingent beings. This world is contingent on God's necessary existence being eternal. So, yeah, God chose to do that. And we are spectators, if you will. But when we start talking about evil, um, before Adam and Eve, um, R.C. Sproul referred to as Adam, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden as the mystery of iniquity. And personally, I'm with Johnny Mac and a lot of other theologians that said, well, that's kind of easy because when Satan walked onto the scene, it was a game changer for them. The real mystery of iniquity is how did evil find itself in the heart of Satan? Now, he's an incorporeal being. He's angelic, so they don't have hearts but they're volitional creatures. So how did that desire for evil, pride, namely, enter into the heart of Satan? That is a tough, tough question. Now, uh, there's a few verses that come to mind that I always want to caution myself and anybody else willing to at least talk about and speculate a little bit about this. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, not Paul's warning for us not to go beyond what is written. And so we always want to guard ourselves, KJ. I know you agree with me. Uh, we want to stick to what the Bible says and be very cautious about what it does not say. This is an area where the Bible is silent. However, there are biblical principles that we can use to apply and talk about how that comes about. But I'm also reminded of Deuteronomy 29, 29. that says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, mm -hmm. but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all of what the, the words of the law say. So there are certain secret things to, the, to God that we don't know. We don't want to go beyond scripture. But if we look to certain principles, we may can speculate and say at the end of the day, we still don't know. So before, I don't know if you want to chime in here, um, but before I tell you what I think happened, not with certainty, but I want to tell you what I don't think it is first, if you're okay with that. Yeah, let me read some verses, too, to kind of give us yeah. um, background about this, too, because, you know, many people say, well, does the Bible even explain the fall of the devil? Uh, Isaiah 14, verse 12, it says this, how you are father from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, 
how you were cut down to the ground, you were weak in the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mountain of congregation on the farther sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the most high, yet you should be brought down to Sheol, the lowest depth of the pit. And so what we're, what we're dealing with right now is saying, verse 13, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. How is it possible for a being that's perfect with no sin in him to even have the idea to go against God in the presence of God in heaven? I think there's another place in um, Ezekiel 28. Let me go yep. there real quick. You can read it if you get there before me. Yeah, I'm actually there. I was okay. I was tracking with you, KJ. Um, so it gives kind of another account like you were talking about. Um, most theologians agree that this is referring behind the human king, but to you know an original ruling entity that was corrupted. And so I wanted to pull this up in perhaps a couple different translations, but I want, I want to read at least focusing on verse 14 in Ezekiel 28, where God essentially is addressing Lucifer, a pre-fallen Satan, right? Mm -hmm. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you and you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of the fire you walked. And so what I'm interested in is that phrase, anointed guardian cherub. I think some translations say that is a covering cherub. Um, and the idea, and now this is speculation, there seems to be some preeminence with Lucifer in regards to the rest of them. One way that I've thought about it is you got all these other angelic beings down here, kind of lower, and mm -hmm. then halfway between where God is resting and those angels is you have this covering cherub, kind of covering the glory of God and the other angels can only kind of gaze through Lucifer being this anointed guardian cherub or covering cherub. Don't know how accurate that is, but it's a good picture for me to see. And that's kind of the picture that we're painted though, is there so, is some preeminence with Lucifer in his pre-fallen state. Yeah, definitely too. When you think about it, just to make sure, because, you know, I know there's some kind of you know, parallel between the he, guys obviously talking to the king of Tyree, but then they also start talking to Lucifer as well. So just so I know we're talking about Lucifer, verse 13 says you were in Eden, the garden of God. Obviously, King Tyree couldn't have been in you know, the garden of Eden because that was in the creation. Right. So you have to be talking about Lucifer. Now, in the second aspect, too, uh, there's two types of angels. I guess you say regular angels and archangels. These are angels with, I guess, more superior to regular angels here to call it. We're, we're, we're giving the story of, you know, Satan, Lucifer. We have uh, Michael, the archangel, and we also have Gabriel. These are the only angels that I know of in scriptures that we see who are mentioned more frequently than other angels. Now, I also be pretty more than that. I'm not, you know, I'm not from heaven, so I can't tell you that, but I'm going there. So you know, maybe <laughs> we can talk about when we get to heaven and we see this. But definitely see many people say, I don't know where I got this idea, but many people say that, you know, the devil, he was God's most, you know, anointed cherub. Uh, he was the strongest angel. He had all these beauty, because all those things, right, that we've heard about the devil. And yet he sinned. And I'm going to let Jeremiah kind of tackle this, see his opinion about this is. <laughs> yeah, so we, we're proceeding with caution. But something that I don't think works is you think about the context. You have Lucifer that's created as a holy angel, anointed cherub, covering cherub. He is holy um, internally, everything about him. And then externally, there's nothing but holiness other holy angels singing praise to God and God himself and his Shekinah glory being holiness. So you can't say, ah, the answer is libertarian free will. He just chose. I'm saying that actually doesn't even work as a plausible answer because where would the compulsion of sin come from? It's not going to be external hmm. and it's not going to be internal. So free will does not work in my opinion humble, unbiased opinion here. <laughs> um, so we don't know, but um, and I want to recommend there is a YouTube video that John Piper did kind of quoting Jonathan Edwards, I think about how he wrestled through some of these things. And I thought when I listened to this video, where did the desire for evil come from within Satan? I thought this is the best possible explanation that we could probably get. And they pointed to two verses, but I want to kind of illustrate it first. So since there's this dilemma of everything externally is holiness and internal holiness, we know that God is sovereign. He is the, he is the unmoved mover in some real sense. So he has to initiate 
his, all of his creation. Now, we don't get to level God with evil, right? Because he's the creator and we're all part of the creation. So it's his prerogative how he wants to move about in his world. So Edwards and Piper talk about perhaps God somehow cloaked his glory, his goodness from within Satan. Okay, now you're just like, whoa, Jeremiah, hold the brakes. Why would we ever think about that? Well, in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 17, we get a principle. So we admit at the very forefront that this is talking about the people of Israel, the prophet Isaiah. There's a context with that. But perhaps there's a principle here. This verse, the prophet says, oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear not you return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Now, there's something interesting because, oh, Lord, Yahweh here, the prophet is saying, you make us wander from your ways. You harden our hearts. How, though? Well, he says return. So in some unexplainable way, God seems to be able to remove his goodness where the prophet here feels that and is pleading for him to return. So if we go into Isaiah chapter 64, there's one more verse, KJ. Um, Isaiah 64, verse 7. Uh, very similar. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take a hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So the idea is, what if God is able to cloak his glory, hide his goodness, hide his face uh, from Lucifer's heart in such a way the only thing that is left is evil, pride, the ability to discern this context and say, hey, I desire to be like the, the one on high. So what I like about that is it illustrates that God is sovereign. We see principles of, of that being consistent. And perhaps God is able to cloak and hide his goodness within Satan in such a way that um, it's not just a privation, an absence of, of holiness, but there's a real ontology now of evil. And that's what Satan desires. And God always holds man accountable for what he chooses. And he holds angels accountable for what they choose. The only difference is angels, fallen angels, do not have any chance of redemption. God doesn't owe them that. It's only out of his goodness and mercy. And KJ, this is, this is for free. I thought it was always interesting. I've always pondered deeply about angels, right? I think about how they're almost the opposite of us. Uh, we are physical beings with the spiritual reality. They are spiritual be beings with this physical aspect, right? And yet we are, have questions about angels. And the Bible tells us <clears throat> that they long to look into the things of redemption. They look at us and are scratching their head. They've never experienced <laughs> this thing. Definitely, man. I think what you said, and obviously John Piper and Jonathan Edwards, I think what they're saying is very like, as obviously we believe in show so the scriptura, let the script interpret itself, right? First uh, Timothy 5, 21 says, if I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. Paul talks about Romans 9, how God has made vessels prepared for destruction and also vessels prepared for grace so that, that his glory may be shown, right? We talked about earlier how like um, God's most concerned about his glory. And uh, what if God desired to make us? Obviously he didn't have to, but he chose to do this. He's God, he could do whatever he wanted to. Just going to think with John Piper and Edwards, what if he had this story right here because it would give him the most glory through this story? Now, obviously, again, once again, he does not need humans, but this is a story that he chose to get the most glory. He chose, like you said, in some unique way to remove his goodness from Satan's heart. Sinlessly, of course, he did this without sinning in and of himself, but he allowed the devil and his free, free thinking and secondary causes to have the thought to be evil, obviously, to commit acts against God. And this would bring about the story of redemption, how Messiah would come and deliver the people. What's your thoughts about that, especially with First Timothy 21 or 5? Yeah, I, think you, I think you you nailed it. Um, we always have to keep in mind that creator-creation distinction. I mean, Paul literally says that in Romans chapter 1. So, yeah, God can use the means of Satan to tempt Adam and Eve, and yet God can effectually do a work within Satan's heart. And since he's the creator and sustainer of all things, he does not get charged with being morally responsible of doing something evil. He's the ground of all being. 
he not only defines goodness, but he exuberates goodness, right? And goodness reflects who he is. Hmm. Now, man, uh, just wrapping up here, how does all this theodicy, again, talking about the study of evil, we're talking about some very deep theological things here, right? But what good is theology if it does not go to the heart, right? How does this theology go to the heart in Christians but also unbelievers? Because like you said, everybody has to explain the problem of evil, but how does this theology, theodicy, point to Jesus and the personal work that he did for us on the cross? What a wonderful question, KJ, and a super practical one. I almost want to paint a picture of God's sovereignty for every person, believer or unbeliever alike. But for the believer, I will say this, KJ. Perhaps Romans 8, 28, and 29 haven't become more practical and um, even more practical in talking about the problem of evil. Because when somebody is going through the worst kind of atrocity that they could conceive of, lost a loved one, is being sick, you know what I mean? Just anything. You, you as a believer in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for us, right? That's kind of setting the context. We realize that God is, is working all things together for our good, right? And then he tells us that it's us who are called according to his purpose. And we say, what is that good? What is that good, Jeremiah? How, how can there be good in the midst of this awfulness that's going on in my life? Well, he says he's conforming you to the image of his son. There is actually purpose in what you're going through. Your hurt and pain, First Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7, says it's to mold your faith, to refine it as though it's going into fi- to fire and coming out even more valuable and precious. That's why James chapter 1 says, count it as joy, because this is testing in your life. When God moves, it's testing, right? And he uses these secondary uh, means that we perceive as negative. And they truly are negative, right? When we see real evils that happen, but we can look to God saying, ah, he is working all these things together for my good. And in Romans, you, you've been drumming this, this all night, but Romans eleven thirty six says, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. So in a, a simple statement, KJ, why does, why does evil happen specifically in my life, where, whether it's moral evil or natural evil? for my sanctification and for God's glory. Amen. Definitely, man. Wonderful said. Wonderful said. And obviously, I always enjoy this, but for Christians, you're on the winning side, even though right now it may seem, what is it, First John chapter 5? I think it says, John says something lines with this, that like the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I mean, you go outside right now, turn on the news, it seems like evil is winning. It seems like darkness as engulfing the earth. Satan is winning. Uh, I think uh, people are dying and going to hell. It's all around you, right? But yet the Bible tells us that we're on the winning side. Uh, I know it's, many people don't like him at times, but Billy Graham, he says, I, you know, I, I looked at Revelation and read it. And, you know, he got kind of encouraged because he says, I'm on the winning team. I think that applies to us today, too, because you look, look at Revelation. It tells you how God's going to finish everything, but also that how God conquers. And if we, us who are trusting in Jesus will conquer to them as well. Obviously, Tulip, the P, Perseverance of the Saints. We will persevere in Christ because of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so I think it's so encouraging that even though there is a problem you were out there, God is already dealing with it. Obviously, at the cross, he's still dealing with it now, and he'll do away with it when he returns again. And so we have no need to worry about it, and we can just trust in our God. I, I believe it's in Genesis. Uh, Abraham comes with the God. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah is going to get destroyed, and uh, Abraham's worried about Lot getting destroyed in the midst of <laughs> Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's, he brings it for God, will not the judge of all creation do what is right? And then we're saying, man, Jeremiah saying, Jeremiah saying here is that, yes, God will do what's right. You can trust in that sovereign God. So in the last words, man, if we get out of here. The chief end of man Uh-oh. is to enjoy God and to, um, or to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Some now, Bible, I love that. Theology right there. That... <laughs> That speaks to the heart of Christians, right? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But God will get his glory in one of two ways, either enjoying him through salvation, right? And we understand that's contingent on God's grace and mercy, or you will give God glory through his justice and his wrath. So that's why we command all men everywhere to repent, to put their faith in the only savior. Um, But Jesus is Lord, right? Whether somebody acknowledges or not. 
Definitely, definitely. And again, uh, be on the lookout for Jeremiah's debate in February in Arkansas State. What's the date again, man? February 11th. That'll be a Friday evening at 6 p.m. at Centennial Hall in um, ASU, Arkansas State University. All right. Also, be on the lookout January 31st. I was able to get a big time name to join the podcast with us. And so we'll be going to Chapter 7 of the Covenants. And also, um, we were talking to the former manager of mine. We had a funny idea. In Genesis chapter six, the word Nephilim, uh, many Christians have throughout history debated, you know, talking about angels, talking about, you know, the righteous seed of, you know, Seth and Cain mixing one another. And so I'm going to let uh, Jeremiah and uh, my friend Zach Davis have a discussion about that. Lord willing, sometime maybe in the middle of February, somewhere around there. And then I also have more podcast episodes on evangelism. I know Jeremiah is interested in doing something about, you know, presuppositional teaching that on here. So that'd be a cool idea. So be on the lookout for all those things. So thank you, Jeremiah, for being on with me. Hope you guys have a good day.